save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Let's uh, get started with phone calls, and A.J. is up first. Good morning, A.J. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, I, sir. I, I, after I talked to you well, yesterday afternoon, I had some more questions. Uh, which is better for that situation, the lot dry molasses or liquid molasses, or it doesn't really make any difference? It is all a matter of how you want to apply it and what kind of equipment you have to apply it with. Dry molasses is certainly easier. Dry molasses, you can get out there by hand and spread it. You can go out there on a windy day and just throw it up in the air and let Mother Nature spread it for you. But you pay a higher price per uh, ounce of molasses that way, substantially higher than you do with liquid molasses. Now, liquid molasses goes on pretty easily with a hose-in sprayer. Sometimes you have to dilute it a little bit. And for those of us just putting it on our yard or our gardens, uh, it is certainly more economical, and it's just as efficient. If you're going to be applying it to acreage, now you need to have some sort of sprayer you tow behind your tractor or whatever vehicle. And um, so, you know, if you have the right equipment, it's always less expensive to use the liquid, but it's um, easier and more convenient to apply the dry so you work what or you use whatever works for your budget and your situation this will be just a small area uh putting down that compost in that so any if you if i go liquid which i probably believe i will Mm -hmm. what how much would you mix to a gallon of water a couple of cups about an ounce oh that's all yes sir Yes, sir. And and what you have to realize, if you use one of these little sprayers on the end of the hose that mixes it by by itself and you just set it on one tablespoon per gallon, sometimes that molasses is a little too thick to go through your sprayer very well. So what I do is I dilute the molasses half and half with water and then set my hose-in sprayer for two tablespoons per gallon, which, of course, actually yields one tablespoon per gallon. It goes through super easily and... You know, you're probably looking at almost as much time to rinse and clean your sprayer as it takes you to get out and spray the whole area with molasses. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the liquid just because of the cost savings. All right, because I'm going to apply it with a sprinkle can. Okay. Since it's not that much of an area. Now, what, what, and what time frame do you think it'll take for it to do its job? About six months? Well, it's, the molasses really isn't doing anything. The molasses is feeding the microbes that do the work. And okay. how long it takes depends on some, to some extent on the amount of microbial life and the nature of the soil that you're looking to improve. Uh, even though you might not see it, there would be benefits starting five minutes after you apply it. And, um, you know, the really noticeable differences could take a month or two months to show up. And I would be thinking about doing it. If you're really working on soil improvement, 
Use your molasses about once a month. Again, we're not talking about any significant amount of time or money. You put your compost down so you've got your microbes. You've brought in literally billions Mm -hmm. of beneficial microbes, so we don't have to think about reapplying the compost. We just have to keep feeding those microbes so they will still work hard for us. And um, if, if you will do it on a monthly basis or even a quarterly basis, you'll begin to see results. Um, gosh, you know, I use my own experience as an example. A few years ago, I was going to plant some fruit trees in January when the bare root trees came in. About September, I went out in the area of my garden where I was going to plant them. That soil was so hard, a digging bar would barely break it up. And all I did was put down about a wheelbarrow or half a wheelbarrow full of compost in every spot where I wanted to plant a tree. And come January, that soil was so soft I could have dug it with a spoon. So okay. it 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 goes to work immediately, and the results uh, really start showing up over a period of time. But, you know, it, it kind of depends on how bad things were to start with. Like remodeling okay. your house. How how badly was it beaten up by the hailstorm before you went in to fix it up? All right. And then it, this is this is a, a procedure that you kind of have to continue maintaining uh, so that the soil does stay loose. Uh, or you just do it one I don't think if you do it one time, it'll probably wind up going. That clay will probably get hard again, won't it? Well, AJ, you asked the best questions in the world. Uh, if you were a guy that used the synthetic fertilizers, the Scots, the Miracle Row, all that crud, um, you would have to do it on an ongoing basis because every time you dump on that synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, you're taking away the benefits that you created with the molasses and the compost. On the other hand, when you continue to use organic fertilizers, when you stop harming the soil, it just continues to get better. I mean, if you if you did nothing but stop using the uh, the high nitrogen synthetic fertilizers, your soil would gradually improve. It's just uh, you know it's kind of like getting in shape. You go work out at the gym every day, you're going to get in shape a whole lot faster than if you go to the gym once a week or once a month. So the rate of soil improvement depends on your input. And if for whatever reason you got busy doing something else or someone else rearranged your priorities for you, those situations that we talk about periodically. <laughs> and uh, But, but that's the thing about organics is if you have to step away for it, uh, from it for a little while, the goodness goes on. Uh, you know, with an organic garden, for instance, uh, let's say that you put out your tomato plants and then uh, you're in the reserves, you got called up and told that you needed to go do thir- three months of active duty, That your garden's not going to suffer while you're gone as long as somebody waters it. You have so much reserve built up there that uh, it's going to take care of itself. When you get back to it, when you get back to that gym and start exercising a little bit more regularly, yeah, the benefits are going to show up. But uh, uh, it's just there's no backsliding. When you go organic, things continue to get better. It just depends on how fast you want them to get better, how much time you have to invest, and, you know, how much money you have to invest because nothing's free in the world today except uh, except goodness. So, anyway, we won't go down that road, but... Uh, um, it, it, it's really all up to you. And if you just stop doing the bad stuff, things are going to start getting better. But with little help, Mother Nature will really speed it up for you. Okay, Bob. Well, I'm going to go look for a situation now. 
And you have a nice uh, holiday weekend. You and do I do this. Thank you. It's my pleasure, AJ. Always. You have a great day as well. Right. And I'll see what James is up to today. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Oh, you know it's just a nice morning out there, even if it is seventy-seven degrees. I sure like those sixty-seven degree mornings better. But um, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend. It's about time for summer to start moving in. Yeah, those 90-degree afternoons are just fine with me, man. That's that's the way to go. I can usually take off enough to stay reasonably comfortable, but I tell you, in the winter months, I sometimes have hard hard time keeping warm. I call with some questions. The girls want me to plant uh, pumpkins, and I'm sure I don't know much about that. Uh, is it too late to get them started for uh, transplants? No, it's not at all too late to get pumpkins started. Uh, the thing that that disappoints most people about pumpkins is that, you know, they get ready long before those fall holidays like Halloween and Thanksgiving that we want to have pumpkins for. And you look at the number of days that it takes a pumpkin to produce. And my experience is you can look at those seed packages and subtract about 30% because things just grow faster and develop more quickly in South Texas. But if if you want to have them ready around Halloween, let's say you're looking at planting most varieties in August or so, and that's a tough time to get things started and growing. But uh, you can grow some real good pumpkins you know, planting right now, direct seed or doing transplant plants, either one, but just don't set your expectations too high because those pumpkins are going to be here and gone long before that crisp autumn weather arrives. Yeah, I'm going to get them started and turn them over to the the, the girls. Uh, I'm I'm going to I'm just the guy that's going to get them started. You know, that's a wise man that learns to delegate. Uh, I got another question for you. Um, that Lindheimer, uh, everybody knows what the shape of that snake is. Uh-huh. Well, I saw one yesterday up in the uh, persimmon tree, and then he was headed out through the garden. Uh, same shape as the Lindheimer, uh, pointy tail, you know, same same physical shape. But he was a kind of a cream in your coffee, tan, yellow-looking snake about six foot long mm-hmm. and i pulled the book out and it uh b-a-i-r-d apostrophe s yeah bear's rat snake yeah have you ever seen one of those yes sir i have and what we call corn snakes chicken snakes even bull snakes are just really closely related to the rat snakes uh bear's is not nearly as common as the old lindheimer's rat snake is but uh they're sure out there okay well that's then I've identified him then, but uh, he was just exactly like the Lindheimer, except he's just a different color. And and this guy was uh, he was a grandpa. He was every bit of six foot. Oh yeah, they're and they're such pretty creatures. Now I will tell you that one thing that rat snakes, pretty much all of them, have in common. I mean, uh, my high school years or junior high years in East Tennessee, we had the big old black rat snakes. We had all kinds of things, but the juvenile rat snakes many times don't look anything at all like the adults. They got to get up to where they're, I'd say, a minimum of three feet long before they really start looking like the adult rat snakes. So 
if you were to call me and say, I found this little two-foot-long snake, and I have no idea what it was. It has big blotches, blah, blah, blah. I tell you, it's one or the other of the juvenile rat snakes. But when you see, obviously, when you see a, a six-foot snake, you're looking at a fully mature snake, and he hasn't stopped growing. But uh, those are certainly our two principal rat snakes that you're going to see in the San Antonio area. Okay, well, I've identified him. And one project I'm working on, well, we took some three-quarter-inch pipe and drove it in the ground uh, every five foot on each side of the, the new shade house. Uh-huh. And then we took a 20-foot rebar and stuck it in the three-quarter-inch pipe sockets and then built a, a little frame for the shade cloth. Very uh, good. The, all the purlin is is just some some nylon uh, cord. Um, <laughs> So it's working really good. Oh, yeah. yeah. All tomatoes. And if you don't have to build them 60 foot long like I do, but <laughs> if you want a little shade for your tomatoes, that's an easy way to get it. Oh, them. it's, you know, it, it, there, there's so many constructive, creative ways that, uh, um, and, and you're using, I'm sure, a three-quarter inch uh, iron pipe or galvanized pipe. Well, it's, yeah, it's just a little galvanized pipe yeah. from the, you know, the, the junk pile for just drive it in the ground and that gives you a ground uh, socket to sure. put the, the rebar in. It works really good. And then you can just bend it fairly easily. I, I just get really discouraged with people that want to use PVC for purposes like that. And, you know, once you go on the internet looking at all these things and everybody's PVC this, PVC that. You know, PVC's got to be below the ground if it's going to hold up and, it's just it's good for some things, but I just don't like PVC for greenhouse frames or hoop house frames or anything else. That good old steel, even if it's a rebar, it's going to rust on you. It's going to last for 20 years, and uh, by that time, you're probably going to want to do something else with that spot anyway. Yeah, it's real quick and real inexpensive, and what we're doing is uh, this old uh, worn-out uh, uh, drip drip hose or uh, yeah. that black, yeah. even even garden hose, All I'm collecting it. I uh, I put it uh, put it over those rebar hoops and sure. and it it's it's really nice. It doesn't doesn't take any time to get that shade cloth. Well, on and you and your good assistants just going to have to get a a really good website going showing all of these different projects and things. It would be uh, it'd be very popular, and uh, I think a lot of people could learn a lot from you. Well, we need the shade, and uh, if you've got that mockingbird out there, he's going to want to get on them, so <laughs> you need something to hold the cloth up. Well, you do, and, you know, I am I worry a little bit. I'm not seeing a whole lot yet, but we're sure set up for a pretty good grasshopper summer this summer, too. And uh, uh, granted, they may go in the ends, but you're not going to have nearly as many of them if you have something over the top of them. And uh, uh, those blasted grasshoppers, um, pretty hard to pretty hard to eliminate so i'm all in favor of a i mean it's not going to stop the little thrips insects and things like that but it'll stop the big guys that uh that cause the most damage one more question and i'll leave you alone uh can we spray the uh seaweed and the bt in the same hose in sprayer absolutely in fact, okay, you well, can... how, do, how do how do we uh I, I don't i'm not sure on how to mix that can you give me a little help on that well, you know, basically what I'm going to do is mix the seaweed 
and the BT at whatever it says on the on the package. Seaweed's going to be about a tablespoon per gallon. BT's going to be probably about uh, two tablespoons per gallon. And I'm going to throw a little molasses in there because the molasses makes the BT so much more effective. And I'm going to put my mix in there. And overall, I'm probably going to want to set that sprayer on somewhere between one and two tablespoons per gallon. But if my mix is thick enough that it's not likely to be siphoned effectively, I'll just mix it 50-50 with water and double the setting on the sprayer. And if that's still too thick, I'm going to mix it three to one, and I'm going to set the setting on the sprayer four times as much because that way I'm getting the appropriate dilution. But the fun thing about seaweed, the fun thing about molasses, the fun thing about BT is if you get a little too much or not quite enough, it's still going to work extremely well for you. Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah, I've got to get uh, get out there. The the BT is losing a little bit of its its kick, so we're switching between that and the the spinosad. Well, and don't forget when you when you add that uh, little bit of molasses to your BT, you're making it about twenty times more effective than BT alone. So don't forget to put that in there. I will not. And thanks for your good advice, Bob. It's always a pleasure, James. You get out and have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Let's get right back to these phone lines. Thomas is up first. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I wanted to ask you, when you when you plant uh, seeds in your little trays, mm-hmm. all right, and they come up, uh, okay, when you get them out that on mine, Maybe I'm taking them out too soon. It just that potting soil just crumbles. Okay. And then I tried it dry, and then, you know, it just crumbles up, and you, it seemed like well, the roots all exposed then, and then I wet it down real good. It, you got to be real careful to keep that that plant from. Uh, how do you do that? I mean, how, well, they're they're basically they're two ways that I will seed. I will take a tray that has like 36, 48, even 96 little individual compartments in it. I will fill it with soil, and I will put one or two seeds, whatever is appropriate, in each one. And if I'm starting my seed in that kind of container, I'm going to let the little plant get fairly tall. I mean, as soon as it germinates, it's going out into a sunny area, so it stays good and compact. But I may not move it out of that starting tray until that plant is six inches tall so that it, you know, it will be well established and it will hold that, you know, hold that soil together very well. Uh, The other way that I sometimes do it, and this is what I did with my granddad when I was five or six years old, but uh, we would take our germination tray, so to speak, would fill it with soil, would put the seed in there. Uh, we'd sprouted up, and when those little plants were maybe two inches tall, and we used tomato plants as example, we would go through and very carefully separate those little plants out, not a single bit of dirt on them, but then transfer them into the pots that we were going to let them grow up in. So um, you've got a choice. If you're just putting a bunch of seed in a tray, you don't expect the soil to hold together. You expect to basically bare root those plants, but you're repotting them again within seconds. So well, they transfer. Like six pack, uh, like uh, about the six pack plant. Well, know? I think you're just taking them out of the six packs too soon. I'm I'm not gonna you know that that to me is letting that plant grow up 
to basically a full-size transplant, which might be six inches tall, eight inches tall. If you're finding, and I'm not as worried about the soil, if you're telling me the soil's crumbling away, I'm going to tell you you don't have enough roots in there because it's the roots that hold the soil together. So uh, my suggestion is feed a little bit more often. Good liquid has to grow or, you know, one of the other good liquid organic fertilizers and be sure they're out in the sun so those plants stay stocky. But uh, you got to let them stay in there a little bit longer. You've got to wait till they have a good root system on them before you start popping them out of your six pack. And if you're not sure of the reliability as far as germination of your seed i mean you can put as many as three seeds in each little cell of that six pack when they sprout and start growing if you have to pick two of them out and just throw them away that's fine most seed is pretty cheap and um again i I think you're just trying to take them out of that six pack too soon i think you need to feed them more let them stay in there till they've built a bigger root system now now when you plant the when you plant them, do you, how deep do you plant them? Because I find that, uh, like on on these, that I'm trying to uh, experiment around with this Nevada lettuce. Uh huh. Well, lettuce seeds yeah. should be planted very shallow, maybe an eighth of an inch. Uh, in well, fact, I get them up and everything, but when you when you plant the when you take them out of the out of the little six pack, you plant them in the in your you know in the ground or whatever. And they how deep do you plant them? Because they seem to lay over. And then when you water them, you know they get they lay on that wet dirt. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're not. I think you're not giving them enough sun. I think you're not growing a strong enough plant to start with. Uh, basically, other than tomatoes, you plant them at about the same depth they were growing. Now broccoli and cauliflower doesn't really hurt if you plant it a little bit deeper. But if your plants are not standing up well, they're short on nutrients and short on sunlight. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, again, stop and, you know, think about the pros have got an ideal growing situation and, and they've got a greenhouse, they've got it all figured out. Those of us at home are frequently working with less than ideal conditions. And if it's a cool weather plant like lettuce, you might want to think about building what they call a coal frame and let your little seedlings get really well developed in there. It's just darn hard to make a decent plants, uh, transplant inside. If you don't have a greenhouse, you need a protected area outside, you need a coal frame, you need a way to grow a strong little seedling before you put it into the garden. Um, and, and you're certainly capable of doing that. You're a good gardener. I just think you need to develop a little bit better area um, for to keep the plant during that time frame between the time it sprouts and the time that is really ready to go out and live on its own in your garden. Well, can, how, how soon do you start fertilizing with, like, say, house to grow? Oh, I'll do it before they even sprout. When, okay. I, when I plant my seed... I'll be watering watering it in with a little bit of uh, has to grow and a little bit of garret juice. Okay, that's good. Uh, another thing, Bob, uh, on the bougainvillea, uh, to get them to plant, they like to be root bound, right? They bloom better if they are root bound. Yes, sir. Well, do you plant put the pot and all in the ground or what? That's what I frequently do. Uh, and they're going to grow roots through the holes in the bottom of the pot. They're going to get well established that way. But uh, two benefits. Number one, they bloom better. So long as you have the right variety of bougainvillea, they bloom better root-bound like that. And if we get a really bad winter and you say, oh, wow, I want to dig them up and bring them in, 
you just slip that sharpshooter down along the sides of the pot, cut the roots that have grown through, and it's a whole lot easier to take them out of the ground and stick them in the greenhouse for a few nights if you have to. Okay. Well, that's good. Good information. I appreciate your time. And, you know, Bob, one thing, <clears throat> I've listened to you for a long time. <clears throat> and you, you've always got a positive, uh, you know, stand on your on your information. Well, I love what I do. There's so much negative out there. <laughs> it, 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 it's good. And even the people that call in. Well, you know, the people that call in are, are uh, it's really, it's really refreshing because, you know, that's our world needs some help right now. Well, I, I think you kind of make your own environment and, uh, things aren't perfect in my world. They aren't perfect in anybody's world, but, uh, if you dwell on the negative, it's going to happen. If you dwell on the positive, you have a whole lot better chance of things getting better. And, uh, I wish a few people would learn a little bit more of that, and I wish people would spend more time looking forward than looking back because, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a spring chicken anymore, so to speak, but I still feel like the best years of my life are still ahead of me. When I'm 75, 85, 90, however old I make it, I hope I'm always thinking that the best is yet to come, and that, that's just my philosophy on life, Thomas, and I think it's probably yours as well. Well, that's... I, I appreciate your, you know, your, your time. I know, you know, you have to get up, you get up early and, and especially on Saturday. And start oh my gosh. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right. Straight back to the phone lines and Alice is first. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I've been under the impression that, um, scale is a white flaky stuff on the limbs. But what I have on my lemon tree is, um, eggs they look like little eggs but they're real flat and they cover the entire limb and i have ants all over the place okay they are probably not uh anything good uh they could actually be a type of scale that looks a lot like an egg and the ants actually take and plant these insects there and then the ant feeds on a sugary excrement that the that the insect leaves behind Probably there there are a couple of ways to go after them. Either one of the insecticidal soap products like Safer Soap or even Spinosad Soap would be very safe on your lemon tree. Um, neem oil is another one. You have to be careful to, about using neem because if you use it in the heat, you can burn things. But I would be spraying that tree. I'm probably going to use insecticidal or I'm going to use the Spinosad Soap. And you have to be real careful to coat everything pretty well because it actually works by smothering uh, these little guys that are on the leaves and on the limbs of your lemon tree. You may have to apply it a couple of times. I think if you ran your hands over it, um, you would find that there's a lot of moisture there, that there's you know a lot of life here. The only way you're going to know when they're dead is when you run your finger over it and it's kind of flaky and comes off. Now, uh, the one egg that you may see, which is of a beneficial insect, it'll be a little white egg and it's standing up on a little thread, like almost like a spider web thread sticking up with this little tiny white egg on top of it. Now, that is the egg of the lacewing, and uh, they are good guys. But what you're describing to me sounds more like scale or one of the more destructive insects. And the ants are there because they're feeding on some of the excrement that's left behind. So uh, 
I'm going to do it morning or evening when it's not real hot sun, and I'm going to use something that will actually smother them. In my case, it's probably going to be spinosad soap. Okay, well, because the uh, the limbs are really shrinking a little, and the leaves are just drying up and dying. Yeah, what you've got is an insect that actually underneath that thing that looks like an eggshell is actually a hard covering. There's a little live insect there that's literally sucking the life out of the plant. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, I thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate the call. And I'll get on to Marco. Good morning, Marco. Good morning, Bob. Morning, um, sir. I recently started a, uh, a land clearing business using a ski steer with that drum motor in front. Uh-huh. And, um... And I wanted to see, I was just thinking about kind of offering something different to my customers where I didn't know if there was any kind of organic program. A lot of questions I get is, you know, how long is it going to take to break down? When will the grass come back? This and that. And, and I tell them, you know, every situation is a little different. Obviously, rainfall, kind of what the situation of the area was prior to me getting in there and clearing some of those cedars or some of that mm-hmm. underbrush out. And I didn't know if you, rec- you could recommend anything that I could come back and maybe spray on top of it kind of that molasses question kind of got me thinking i was like well maybe there's something i could come back and and hit it with speed up that process and then i'll tell them you know maybe disking some native grass seed or something down the line but kind of wanted just to get your opinion well a great question and i appreciate what you're doing um molasses is going to be the single best thing you can put out there because molasses is going to stimulate the microbial life and I'll tell you honestly, um, and I know this from, you know, clearing, cedar clearing that I've done on top of uh, one particular hill on my own ranch, even though this hill was choked with cedar for, God, probably 30, 40 years longer than I've been, you know, taking care of it, when I took the cedar off, I had native grass sprout and come up everywhere. That good native seed can stay in the soil, can remain viable for years and years and years now somewhere down the road sure if you want to go to douglas king or somewhere like that and uh get a good native blend you're always going to enhance things but um your customers are going to be absolutely amazed at how many wildflower seeds and how much native grass seed is already there and i mean it took less than one season lots going to depend on how much rainfall we get uh, but the combination now, now people that really want to improve their land, they're going to do two things. They're going to get rid of the cedar and then they're going to remove the, you know, browsing animals or grazing animals as much as possible. Uh, in my own case, I use the cedar that I cut to build, uh, what my parks and wildlife friends called an exclosure to keep the cattle and the deer out. And I mean, six months later, it looked like you had been transported to a whole different part of the hill country, the amount of regrowth I got. So, um, you know, in short, pray for rain and spray molasses, and it's going to take care of itself. If you can keep the cattle off of it, it'll recover a lot faster. If you can keep the cattle and the deer off of it, better still. Absolutely. No, that that's very helpful. I appreciate that. And, uh, I get I get hired a lot to do like kind of clean roads and senderos and stuff in South Texas where mm-hmm. obviously the mesquite and everything is pretty proficient and it mulches up really well. It can comes really fine and stuff like that, but the regrowth is just comes back with the vengeance and a lot of these ranchers and stuff that I work for, I mean, they're pretty used to using remedy and those type of uh yeah. those type of products uh to kind of hit it back on that regrowth and and uh, they they kind of like the, the the mulching because when that tender little regrowth comes, the remedy seems to be a little more effective than a big grown tree. But I was going to see, I mean, other than um, 
the vinegar and orange oil you, you have anything else in your in, in your pocket for something like that well i you know and again it's a it's a big difference when you've got to take care of 100 acres in a day but uh, right. I, the remedy is just going to kill everything that's beneficial. You're going to lose your good shrubs. You're going to lose a lot of the cover that your game birds and things like that like. You're going to kill your oak trees and everything else with remedy. I spot treat, you know, and uh, fortunately, uh, we're a lot better off than you because we have cedar. And if you get the cedar down, it dies. But the mesquite that I have that does regrow, I spot treat it with a mixture of uh, simply nothing more than diesel and molasses. It's not organic, but diesel is one. And if you you know read, you've been you've watched them work. They're mixing diesel with the remedy, and quite honestly, the diesel's doing as much yeah. good as a toxic chemical. And I simply right. spot treat those stumps. Uh, the diesel kills the molasses, cleans up the uh, diesel residue. And it's it's not something that you can just put in a boom sprayer behind your uh, PTO and, and take off and do it. It does Absolutely. involve a little foot time, a little bit of agitation, but uh, I think it's worth the effort to avoid the toxic side effects of a chemical like Remedy. Perfect. No, that's really helpful. I mean, I live in Bernie proper, but I you know, get hired to do stuff all over and um uh, and so now those were just kind of some that, that kind of had those ideas in my mind. But I thought I'd, uh, I'm driving down the road this morning. Thought I'd give you a shout. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure, and I appreciate what you're doing and the fact that you're doing it in a thoughtful manner. And somebody else that you really ought to sit down and talk to uh, at some point. Uh, and and these guys and gals are the best in the world. But uh, some of the field biologists for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, you know, you will learn before I started uh, creating some of the places I have created on my ranch to improve wildlife habitat. Uh, I One of the Parks and Wildlife biologists actually walked the land with me at no charge and said, OK, do this, do this, do this. And oh, by the way, did you know you have this significant species over here? You have this. And uh, don't feel guilty. Our tax money is what supports Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And most of the people that I know from the director, Carter Smith, all the way down, they're happiest when they're out in the field helping people improve their land. And um, I think you'll find the same. I, I think you'll find them to be a wealth of information, uh, probably far better than me, as specific things you can do to help your clients improve their habitat. And, you know, some folks are doing it to improve their grazing. Some people are doing it to improve uh, their bird hunting potential or at least their bird populations. Other people are supporting a little bit bigger um, things like deer or exotics. But everybody can learn from, you know, people who have been there doing it. And Parks and Wildlife is just an incredible resource we have here in Texas. No, absolutely. They are. They are a great resource. No, thank you for that information, Bob, and uh, you enjoy the rest of your weekend. And you do the same, and keep up the good work, Marco. We'll talk again. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines, and Kim is up next. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. I was wanting to, I was wanting to know what you would recommend. Um, my son has a sort of a small lawn, but about a third of it, like about a 30 by 30 uh, square foot area has a lot of Johnson grass and we've been hand pulling each time we mow but Waste it's time. still 
waste yeah. of time. Um, okay, what would you recommend? The nice thing about Johnson grass, it has to grow tall. If it can't grow tall, it dies. And it might mean firing that mower up a little bit more often, but if you will keep it mowed off to where it can't get more than an inch or two tall, a uh, month, two, three, four months down the road, it will be totally dead and gone. Trying to pull it, you're just going to have those rhizomes sprout back over and over. But if you'll right. be consistent about keeping it mowed down, that's all you have to do to get rid of it. All right. Well, I appreciate it very much. Well, I appreciate the call. Have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. You too. Thank Thanks, you. Kim. And goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. Victor is next. Good morning, Victor. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you. How about you? Great, great. I got a question. Uh, my uh, neighbor has a St. Augustine grass, and he's got a lot of brown spots and, and patches, a lot of it. Uh huh. And he's, uh, he said he's totally treated with nematodes. I told him that he probably has a fungus, and he probably would have to put some cornmeal and fertilize it. And well, I don't know, is it too late to put that and uh, mulch? Well, it's, uh, it's a great question. Um, now that the weather is hot, uh, we have very few fungi that show up during warm weather. They usually show up when the uh, nights or when the days are warm and the nights are cool, but we're getting pretty much beyond that stage. So, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't think that the cornmeal would be that effective. I suspect that it is just as likely that he has had grub damage, but most people, the damage is done before they realize they have it. And even if you then go in and kill the grubs, the damage that they have done is going to look worse for quite some time before it starts looking better. So I think your friends, your neighbor's best bet is number one, put down a good organic fertilizer it's getting awfully hot to put compost on. I mean, two weeks ago, I would have told you it's ideal, but these days that are getting up in the low 90s and things, you're you're running the risk of burning because most of the compost out there is not super well finished. So at this point, I'm going to be sure that I'm watering correctly, which means watering really thoroughly about once a week, but not for 15 minutes, more like for an hour, hour and a half to really soak things thoroughly. Your St. Augustine is just coming into its full growth. So um, a little organic fertilizer, whether it's Nature's Creation or Medina or Maestro Grow, or um, there are a lot of good ones out there, um, that is going to fill in those dead spots quicker than just about anything else. Okay, so it's a late split compost then. Yeah, I think it's too late. Two weeks ago would be different, but when we start hitting 90s during the day, that's when you run the risk. Now, putting compost on is not going to kill your grass, but it's going to lead to some yellowing. It's going to look worse for a while instead of looking better. So I would tell him to be sure and put that on his fall agenda. When it starts cooling down, probably October or so, be one of the best things he could do. But right now, I think fertilizer and water are going to be the best answer. And do watch for uh, June bugs because they rarely hit the same yard two years in a row because they're going to lay their eggs in the nicest, thickest grass they can find. And the way to stop your grubs is to watch for June bugs. And if you start seeing June bugs, that's the time you put your beneficial nematodes out because the grub worm that does all the damage is not those guys that are an inch long you know, coiled up with the brown heads and the white gray bodies. Those guys have already done most of their eating. The damaging grubs are little things that are maybe a quarter of an inch long. Technically, we call them the first and second larval instars. 
And most people, by the time they realize they've got the damage, those grubs have already cut so many roots that the grass is going to look bad no matter what you do. So we've got to watch the porch light, and when those gym bugs start showing up, we've got to get out and put the beneficial nematodes out as they lay the eggs so that we head the damage off. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, sounds good. I'll let them know that, and I appreciate it, Bob. Well, I appreciate your call. You get out and have a wonderful Memorial Day. And, uh, Tim, I only have a few seconds here before news time, or uh, actually Paul's going to be next. Paul, Kim, and Tim are my next three callers, and uh, we'll make you guys first when we come back right after the news. Some of your nurseries and suppliers are open tomorrow. Many of us close, uh, take the day off. I talked to uh, my friend Jeff Knight out at Stone and Soil Depot. They are actually closed today and tomorrow. So call before you head out if you're going to be shopping tomorrow. I think most nurseries and many of your suppliers are going to be open today. But uh, a lot of folks take Memorial Day off, as I think people should. I Like I said before, I think it's important that we all remember the people, men and women, that we honor on Memorial Day and uh, that let us go play <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a wonderful early summer day. So get out and enjoy, but uh, be aware some of your suppliers are going to be open tomorrow. Many are not, and uh, just don't make a trip. Get out today and stock up. Remember, no sales tax on plants or mulch or compost. This is KTSA San Antonio. Go back to the phone lines, and that would be Kim. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just have one quick question, because um, all of a sudden, my comfrey started blooming this week. Right. And I want to make sure... Is it should I be picking those blooms off or leave them on? I didn't know if it was kind of like some of the other, like basil or whatever, where if um, yeah if I leave it on, then it will go to seed. I, so I was no, do I it's, pick it off or can I just enjoy the purple flowers? You can just enjoy the purple flowers. It's going to continue to grow and spread whether you leave them on, whether you take them off. Uh, I, I'm like you. They're kind of a pretty flower, and I don't believe it interferes with the growth or the uh, – you know, increase uh, uh, comfrey, of course, sprouts new plants from the roots as well as, you know, widening out from the base of the plant. So sounds like you've just got some beautiful, healthy uh, comfrey. All I do is fertilize it and water it, and uh, hopefully you won't need it to take care of scorpion stings and the things that I use it for or fire ant bites. But uh, um, one, it's one thing to hope you never need it but it's always good to have it there because reality frequently sets in and uh just when you least expect it you'll find that you're really glad to have your your comfrey out there but no it's it's doing its thing well, all you need to do is water and fertilize well actually we've been using it kind of on a daily basis with mosquito bites around here so um, definitely it's definitely coming into handy with the little ones because even when you we put um you know some of the oils and stuff on them they still get a bite or two so yeah. it helps for sure uh, the blasted mosquitoes and they, seem... like plant, they like plant medicine that's what they call it <laughs> well that's um, great and one more what about oregano should i pick the blooms off of it doesn't really matter um different matter yeah well, in some cases with my basil it because my basil tends to start drying up when i if i let the let the flowers grow and that's well, why we cut it off uh, you should cut it off on the basil and the other thing bad okay. about basil is if you leave the blooms on it frequently makes a seed and those hard little black seeds if they get mixed in with your pesto 
Uh, it's it's amazing to me how well our teeth are constructed and you can get something that's smaller than a poppy seed and it feels like you're biting down on a boulder so uh you you want to keep the seeds out of your pesto and that's the second good reason to keep uh, the blooms off and and some basils bloom more than others the sweet basil which is of course is what we most widely most commonly use that's the worst about flowering and that's the one that really needs to be picked flowers off of it every day but i just but then my basil grows you know nice five feet tall if i, yep. if I keep the flowers cut off well yeah. next time planter when you have the opportunity plant some african blue basil and maybe a little bit of purple okay. basil and there's some others okay. that are not quite as bad about flowering so prolifically but on your sweet basil and all of its variants the compact spicy globe things like that do exactly what you're doing keep keep trimming those flowers off and i assume that if i wanted to go get some of that african uh the blue basil or whatever i can still plant that now because oh absolutely the yeah, absolutely okay. an african blue basil that is too, that'll just make it look pretty oh yeah it's it's pretty stuff and african blue basil frequently survives the winter i don't know exactly where you are but here in san antonio african blue island so it definitely will <laughs> yeah, okay very good yeah, yeah it's, it's one that'll perennialize for you all right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Hey, you are so welcome. Appreciate the call. Question. Thank you. Glad I got in quick this morning. Thank you. <laughs> Me too. Bye. You dialed right. Okay, Bernie's thank up you. next. Good morning, Bernie. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Get you off speaker. Uh, I have a question about blackberries. Uh-huh. I, um, I read in the paper that they're, well, first of all, I, I planted uh, a blackberry bush last year, mm-hmm. and uh, and and we're getting, I think, really good production off of it. Good for uh, you know the first first full year. I was concerned because I read in the paper there is such a thing as a bitter bug mm-hmm. that can that can get in them. Now we've picked and eaten some of them and haven't experienced that, but uh, is there something that that I could apply prophylactically to uh, prevent that? I think if you're growing a good organic garden, your chances are of encountering those is really very low. When I'm out just, and there's an awful lot of blackberries, it just goes straight off the plant and into my mouth. But I always do take a look at them before I pop them in. And the ones that uh, get taken inside, they always get a good rinse and a colander before they go into the refrigerator. And, uh, uh, I, I I think that you you do more harm than good in this case. Trying to spray to prevent something that's probably not there, you probably wind up killing off some of the good guys. So I'm going to tell you just you know look at it before it goes into the gullet, and you're not going to have any problems at all. The one thing that if you haven't learned, but to maintain good health and vigor in your blackberries, the canes that produce the berries right now that you're enjoying. Once they finish the production, they're done. And even though they may still look green and things, you're best to carefully go in with your pruning shears and prune out the canes that produce this year's berries because all that new growth is coming up all over the place. That is what's going to make next year's berries, and you do not want to cut it back. But if you take out uh, the old canes when they have finished producing uh, the plants are more manageable, they are less susceptible to disease, and they are less susceptible 
to the handful of insects that get after them. Second thing I will tell you about blackberries is they take a lot more water than a lot of people realize. They will tolerate some drought. They will tolerate getting dry. But if you love blackberries as much as I do, you want absolute maximum production. And that's going to mean watering them probably twice a week and feeding them. If you use a liquid fertilizer, use it once a month. Using a dry fertilizer, use it uh, three, four, five times a year. But the way that you take care of your blackberries right now is going to have a big influence on how many berries you get next year. So it's one of those plants where we're always looking to the future as we're picking off the good stuff. And, boy, there's, there's just not anything much better than good fresh blackberries. So from, from what you're saying, then, if, if they do, in fact, have those bugs, I haven't seen any, but I, they're, they're visible to the eye. Is oh, absolutely. Correct? Yeah, Absolutely. And, okay. uh, okay. and, and you could kill them easily with spinosad, but you know, you're, you're killing off, uh, uh there's so yeah. many beneficial insects in the garden and most of the time they do all the pest control we need. The people that have the bitter bug, the people that have a lot of these troublesome things are the ones that spray preventatively too often and kill off the beneficial insects that would be controlling them. So, uh, I'm in this situation, I'm much more reactive uh, than I am proactive. Proactive, I'm going to watch for problems, but I'm not going to be out there spraying even good organic toxic products. I'm not going to be using them unless I find a real reason to. I'm I'm a uh, Webster disciple, so uh, (laughs) everything is organic. And uh, my my blackbird bush is right next to my water catchment tank. Oh, good. So uh, it it can get uh, all the water it needs. Now, I did notice, and that I appreciate the advice about cutting off the canes after they produce, I, the plant has two giant canes that just came up mm-hmm. uh, over, over the others. Right. Uh, there's, no, there, there, there's no blackberries on them, but they're, they must be eight feet long. And those are, is, ones is that that came, those are ones that came out this spring, right? Yes. And see, that's that's you. You've identified uh, very correctly what's going on. Those are next year's berry-producing canes. The canes that have the berries on them that you are eating, those are the ones that came up last spring and last summer. And if you're getting canes that are eight feet long, you're a very good gardener. And uh, don't tell your neighbors you're going to have an abundance of berries next year. But uh, I, I don't mind that most of our employees think that I don't grow blackberries very well because they don't get very many of them. But, you know, if I'm going to go to the trouble of picking and drawing a little blood, getting stuck, trying to get every last single berry out of those thorny things, um, I have to say that's one thing I don't share nearly as quickly as I share my squash and cucumbers. My, my blackberry bush is right next to roses, so I, I get the double whammy of the Blackberry thorns and the roses. Well, it's <laughs> when I'm uh, picking. yeah, it's one of our employees says, "Hey, it's not a day if I don't bleed a little bit." But uh, right. hopefully, if you've got the good gloves, it won't be a problem. But those big old monstrous canes are a tribute to the fact that we've gotten good rains and the fact that you're taking very good care of things. Leave them alone because that's an abundance of berries waiting for you next spring. Oh, excellent, excellent, and then they do uh, they get. Uh, fed with uh, both uh, has to grow and growing green so uh, they're uh, hopefully they're going to continue 
I'm as not going to tell you how to grow. I think you're doing an excellent job. You just, whatever yeah. you're doing, just keep it up. But learning about the yeah. growth cycle and learning about pruning, what you're going to find not only on those giant, we call them primocanes that are coming up now, um, you're also going to have new little plants sprout up all around. You can either let them grow and develop, or you can dig them up and plant them in other places if you want to expand your berry patch or share with friends. You can even put them in a pot, just good potting soil, and grow them that way for a while until you decide what you want to do with them. Excellent. Bob, as usual, really appreciate your help. Thank you very much. And you are so welcome. I appreciate the call, and you get out and have a great Memorial Day weekend. And All right, let's get back to gardening. Paul, Tim, and William, one open line. Grab it if you like. Good morning, Paul. Hey, uh, how are you doing today? I'm great. How about you? Uh, I'm doing better. Good. Um, I've got a question. That, well, i got two of them. Um, we got like this blood sucker. The back of it's like red with black dots, okay. and it's like eating my wife's berry plants. Okay. Um, do you know what they are and what we can do to eradicate them? Well, those actually aren't bloodsuckers, thank goodness. Not the Reduvidae beetle, but they are damaging to your plants. I find that this insecticide called Spinosad, and I like it in the form that is called Spinosad Soap. You can buy that as a concentrate, or you can buy it in a little hand sprayer that's ready to just get out there and spray. That is safe for you. It's safe for the pets. But it does a pretty good job, especially the young beetles. It kills them very, very quickly. The big old ones, it takes them a little bit longer. But uh, I I keep a little hand spray or spinosad soap in my garden all the time. I use it on those guys. I use it on the stink bugs. use it on the leaf-footed bugs that always show up later on my tomatoes. And like I say, it's, it's totally safe for people, kids, and pets. And uh, it's... It's not 100%, but it's the most effective thing I've uh, found against that particular beetle and a bunch of others as well. Okay, and my second question is, uh, i got like a French strain that the grass is starting to grow through, and I don't know what to use to kill the grass. Um, You don't really need to kill the grass. Uh, uh, by French strain, you mean sort of an underground conduit, probably with some PVC perforated pvc pipe yeah, and gravel like around it sewer pipe yeah gravel type thing you know i i don't think you really need to worry about the grass the grass is just one more layer of filtration and it's going to slow the water movement down so it soaks in better i i don't think that's a problem at all if i was concerned about it i wouldn't be trying to kill everything i'd just get out there with my grubbing hoe and you know just cut a little line through it and just take out a few little chunks of sod and things but um no reason to make your yard look ugly and try to kill a big line of grass if you wanted to uh you could burn it back with the vinegar and orange oil mix but i've not okay. yet seen a french drain that i was really going to worry about that on well my well, when it rains real hard, my garage will flood out, you know, and I think it's the grass that's kind of blocking the, the drainage. Well, get out there with your grubbing hole and take out some of that grass and think possibly about putting a second line in there. You may just have uh, not enough of a conduit. You may be getting so much water so quickly uh, that it simply doesn't have time to run through. But uh, I, I'm going to be out there with uh, with a grubbing hoe and, it's it's a little exercise, but uh, uh, yeah. me, I could probably you know dig out along twenty feet of that. 
pipe in 10 minutes or less. So I'm going to do that rather than looking for anything really toxic because uh, even if you kill the grass, it's still going to back up the flow of the water. What you need to do is physically remove a little bit of it. And um, if you feel like you're leaving too much of a trench, go back and uh, backfill with a little pea gravel or something like that. Okay. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Paul. Thank you for the call this morning. And uh, Tim's next. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Morning, sir. When y'all speak of using molasses, yes. Do you have to use an agricultural molasses, or can I use the stuff I buy right off the shelf at ACB? Depends on how much money you want to spend. Agricultural molasses can be a little cheaper, but it's no better. Um, there's the old blackstrap molasses. If you're going to buy something in the grocery store, that's probably the best molasses yet because the sugar is what's going to activate your microbe microbes. But in the case of your back, uh, blackstrap, back, yeah, blackstrap molasses, uh, you're going to get some sulfur and some other micronutrients in there. So it's the sugary stuff in there. That's the main thing we're looking for. And there's nothing magical about, uh, agricultural molasses. And in general, it's just a little bit cheaper is why that's what I usually use. Okay. Well, I'm just talking about using it in my flower pots and uh, a couple of bald spots in my yard and stuff like yeah. that. So I'll just trip over to ACB and buy some molasses. Well, that will do it, but I think what you're going to find is it does such good things. You're going to want to use it on more and more spots. You're going to want to use it in the good grass in your yard because it's going to make it even better. And when you start saying, I'm paying a little bit too much for this, that's when you go look for a gallon of Medina's molasses or something like that. <laughs> you get out and enjoy, Tim. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, let's just keep going for a minute or two here. And uh, William is up next. Good morning, William. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I know you're doing fine, so I don't need to ask how you're doing. <laughs> you're right about that. <laughs> hey, Bob, a gentleman asked, asked and you answered the question about the spinosad soap. I got one of those blogs there chewing on my tomato plant that right. I got from you guys. Right. And uh, I think that'll work out just fine. My other two questions I have are real simple. Uh, for yard spray uh, mosquitoes, I've got a couple of items. I, I boiled down some lemon eucalyptus leaves, mm -hmm. and I wanted to see if that was fine to spray oh, for you, at least a good afternoon. You can uh, you can spray that on your skin, or you can spray it on the yard. I don't, it's going to have to be moderately concentrated to do an oh, effective job. Okay, yes, well, yeah, that's perfectly safe to use. There's no phytotoxicity involved, and mosquitoes do hate the smell. Uh, uh, what has gotten to be when I'm not worried about being out in the sun, my favorite personal repellent is actually a uh, lemon eucalyptus uh, product uh, called Murphy's Naturals. And, uh, right. yeah, I love it as far as repelling mosquitoes. Okay. Should I add any soap to that to spray on the yard? Not any reason to. Or cedar oil. I have some of that as well. The essential cedar, oil. Cedar oil is also a good repellent. But what I would probably do is I would spray one time with just your lemon eucalyptus. Next time you spray, try mixing some cedar in with it and see what you think does a better job for you. Okay. Thank you, Bob. My other question is my zucchini came back from last year, which is kind of strange but really awesome. And it has entangled into my beautiful little rose bush. <laughs> is that going to be all right? <laughs> well, 
Uh, it's going to be a little harder to pick the zucchini without getting the oh, thorns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is a potential that if that zucchini grows too big, too many leaves, your rose bush wants full sun. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a grapevine, I'd tell you, get it out of there because it's going to simply shade your rose too much. Your zucchini is a very temporary thing, and I'm probably not going to worry about it. But if it is so vigorous that it is getting big to the point that it blocks out the sunlight and stops the airflow, I'm going to encourage that zucchini to stay down on the ground where it belongs. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, I don't really have the uh, spinosad soap on me. Is there anything I could use temporarily to get rid of that little bug other than just flick the little mm, guy off? A little soapy water will help, mm-hmm. but uh, pick up some spinosad soap. Uh, do you have straight spinosad? No, I ran out, actually. Okay. Well, I just used a little soapy water for today, but the spinosad soap has a long shelf life, and... Uh, I always keep uh, maybe an extra bottle on hand just so you don't get caught without because those bugs can show up at the least convenient time possible. You're right about that, but we can't show up to your uh, shades of green and not spend a thousand dollars. Well, <laughs> it's too easy to spend money. You know that's so that's that's our little secret. People compare us to the botanical garden, and I always uh-huh. tell them, no, the difference is real easy. You pay to get in at the botanical garden, <laughs> you pay to get out at shades of green. <laughs> yes, sir. It's a, it's a wonderful place, and I appreciate well, y'all. I appreciate you, and hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day, William. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, right back to gardening, and now we got the lines full. It's going to be Ray and Don and Rosendo and Lex. So we get started with Ray. Good morning, Ray. Morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? <laughs> okay, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with this tree. I planted this tree last last year. Okay. And and um. When the summer came and the leaves came out all green and all this stuff. Everything doing fine. And all of a sudden, I water it every day, like two gallons of water, maybe three gallons of water. Okay. Um, the leaves are turning are, are turning yellow. Okay. And what kind of plant is this, right? It, it's a tree. It's a, a live oak. A live oak. Okay. Um, you're probably watering it too often, and you're probably not watering it thoroughly enough when you water. I would be putting minimum of 5 to 10 gallons of water. You never have to worry about putting too much water on, but then you don't want to water it again until that soil is dry, maybe an inch deep. Now, is it still in a pot, or is it in the ground? Oh, it's in the ground. Okay. Um, it would good be good to put some fertilizer on it, uh, something like Medina's Growing Green. Might be good to add a little bit of extra iron in the form of green sand, or magic sand is my favorite. But I think that you're probably watering it too often, but perhaps not watering it as deeply as you should, uh, because uh, there's just no way that you can over-soak it, but you can sure do it too often. So wait until that soil's dry a good inch deep, if that tree's been in the ground and growing for a year, I bet it doesn't need water more than once a week. But it does want to be watered very thoroughly. I, I think you're just giving. I think you're just being too kind to it. I think you're watering too often. 
when you say water it thoroughly, uh, what do you mean? Just once once a week, like you say, and uh, soak it. Yeah, really, really soak it. There's no such. There's you don't ever have to worry about giving it too much water that one time. If I were putting it on with a bucket, I'd be putting on at least five gallons of water. Uh, more likely, I would be laying that hose on the base of the plant, turning it on real slowly, and letting it run for an hour or so. Okay, with this weather, the humidity, it, you still uh, um, water it just once? Yeah. Yeah, the humidity, if anything, slows down the water use. And uh, just remember, a lot of things that pass for a rainstorm in Texas don't wet the ground very deeply. So it may be a hard shower, but unless we've gotten at least an inch of rain uh, on this young tree, you're still going to need to give it a good thorough soaking about once a week. Now, five years from now, this tree is going to be so well established, you're probably only going to have to water it once a year if we get into real drought. But right now, I want you to cut back on how often, uh, and I think once a week will be plenty, but I want you to really soak it thoroughly when you water, and I think your tree will green up again and uh, put on much more vigorous growth. Is, is there any, any possible way there are ants or spiders or anything like that? They may be in there, but they're not hurting the tree. Mm. Okay, because I checked, and uh, since I can't see no ants around the, the around the, on the ground or any spiders or anything like that. No, I uh, spiders are your friends. Spiders eat bad insects for the most part. Ants, if you were to have a big fire ant mound pop up around the base of that plant, yeah, you'd want to get rid of them. But uh, a few carpenter ants, even a few termites, they're not going to hurt a live, vigorous tree like that. So uh, don't worry about the bugs. I don't think they're causing you any grief at all. Thank you, Bob, and you have a nice memorial. You do the same, Ray. I sure appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Mm, Bye. Don's up next. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. What size size do you pick butternut squash, squash at? Oh, golly, I'm going to wait until the skin is hard and tough. Uh, I'm not really going to be looking that much at size. I would say on average, I'm picking a squash that's maybe seven or eight inches long and maybe four inches thick. But uh, I'm going to judge by the texture of the skin more than anything else. And if you let your butternut squash, your acorn squash, um, your spaghetti squash, all these uh, what we call long-season squashes, they call them winter squashes up north, but if they are allowed to develop that really tough, thick skin, those things will keep for weeks. Uh, they're, they're a much more storable squash than our summer squash is. But uh, I, like I say, I don't go by size. I go by skin toughness. And in this case, I'm not looking for a tender-skinned zucchini. I want something that's got some armor on it so it's going to keep better okay what's the easiest way to cook them boil them or fry them um i i grow them i have friends that cook them and bring me casseroles back uh there are a lot of different things baking is probably the most common way that they are prepared but um a good creative person in the kitchen which is not me can give you a lot better advice about that than i can yeah today's my day to start watering the garden and when you do an acre it takes a couple of minutes. And, you know, but it's uh, just wear your sunscreen and your big brimmed hat. 
and take the time to study what's happening. You know, my old friend Alton Grimm taught me that. He said, don't just stand there with the hose. He said, study the plant, study whatever insects you see, study the condition of the soil. And uh, the time sure does pass in a hurry, and you learn something every time you get out there with the water hose. So, uh, man, and it doesn't hurt if you have a cold beverage in your hand at least part of the time. Yeah, my problem is just trying to walk the roads with cats and dogs tripping me all the way through. Well, such a problem to have. <laughs> yeah. I do have a gate that I can close on my garden, and uh, the two labs generally sit very patiently outside. But the minute I set foot outside, I'm being tempted with a stick or a ball and reminded that part of a gardener's work is to entertain the animals. So uh, it's not a bad thing, but uh, it's it's sometimes good to have a fence around the garden. Well, I do, and the dog is what is assists the fence to keep the deer out. Well, not a bad thing. Yeah. All righty. You have a great day, sir. You do the same. Appreciate the call. Thank you. All Bye. Right. Okay, uh, Rosendo. Good morning, Rosendo. Good morning. Hi, Bob. Good morning. How you doing? I'm great. How about you? Oh, doing fine. I have a question on uh, crabgrass. Okay. Uh, they say they use cornmeal. What exactly does uh, where can I get the cheapest cornmeal, I guess, or is a certain brand of cornmeal? Well, you don't use cornmeal. Um, and uh, what what they're talking about is something called corn gluten, G-L-U-T-E-N, corn gluten meal. Oh, and that is, that's what's left behind after they take all the corn syrup, uh, high fructose corn syrup out. What you have left behind is a protein component of the corn, which you call corn gluten meal. And it has some effect as a pre-emergent herbicide, but that means it has to be applied before the seed sprouts and grows. Right now, the only thing you need to put on your crabgrass is your lawnmower because that starts getting getting ready to die as soon as it gets hot. Um, now, if we have a relatively dry spring and you put your corn gluten meal out probably in late January, early February, you will slow down the uh, crabgrass. If we have a wet year like we occasionally have, you're totally wasting your time to put it out because uh, it doesn't kill the seed. It just keeps the seed from developing a root system. And in dry conditions, that little sprouting seed just folds up and dies. In real wet conditions, it just grows away and you've thrown your money away. So uh, I'm much more a fan of regular fertilizer, getting your grass uh, so thick. And here is, I think, the very, very best way to control the crabgrass, and that is, you know, say February or so, chances are we've had a frost or two and your Bermuda has turned brown, and all of a sudden all you've got is little green weeds coming up, dandelions and crabgrass and maybe a henbit and things like that. At that point, you get out with your vinegar and orange oil and spray. You're not going to hurt your Bermuda because it's dormant, but you'll kill all that crabgrass in 15 minutes and be done with it. Okay, okay. So uh, yeah, corn gluten meal is what you're thinking of, but I I don't use much of it because a lot of years it doesn't work at all. Uh, it used to be reasonably priced, but then they figured out it's a pretty good thing to keep an animal feed, and China started paying us you know, a whole lot of money for it, and the price went from $5 a bag to $35 a bag, and I my money goes for better things than corn gluten meal. Oh, okay. All right, well, thank you for that information. Well, that's my pleasure, Sanzo. You get out and have a, a good Memorial Day, and you call me anytime I can help. 
right. Thank you, sir. You have a good day. Thank Bye-bye. you, sir. Bye. Okay, Lex is next. Good morning, Lex. Good morning. How are you doing, Mr. Webster? Uh, well, Mr. Webster is my father. I'm Bob, but <laughs> I'm doing very well. I've got four questions for you. Okay. And first one is a seedless persimmon tree. Okay. And what it is, it was loaded with fruit, and they got about the size of large marbles, mm-hmm. and they're all falling off. Is it a young tree? No, this tree's probably, I'd say, seven, eight years old. Okay. What I suspect happened, uh, even though it's seedless, we call that parthenocarpy, which means producing fruit without a seed, it probably, uh-huh. that late frost that we had, the little embryo that is making the fruit probably froze. And the, it takes a while, the plant, to realize that what has happened, and the fruit usually gets up to about the size of a marble, and then it starts dropping off. And that's usually just a, a late freeze, and, and, you know, we all forget about it because we see the fruit start to form. If the fruit gets right. up bigger than that, if it gets up the size of a golf ball and then falls off, um, that's usually the tree just saying, I've set too many fruit, I can't develop this many, and about a third to half of them will fall off, and the ones that are left behind will develop normally. So I, I don't think there's any lack of nutrient. I don't think there's anything on your part that you really can or should do. I think the tree is reacting to something that nature has done and uh, something that we can't change. It's, and, and persimmons are even worse than peaches and plums about that. Persimmons are tough trees, long live trees, trees that are much more resilient, but they have their own little shell or share of quirks, and uh, dropping fruit uh, this time of year is one of those quirks. Yeah, because I found one on the ground, and and I cracked it open, and it smelled like it was almost ripe, and I tasted it as even sweet, like it was ripe. That's yep. what threw me off. Well, then I think what's happened is your tree just set more fruit than it can mature, and it may have fallen off naturally, or a little feathered friend or a bushy-tailed tree rat that most people call squirrels, something like that <laughs> could have knocked it off the tree. And I see a lot of that, and, and a lot of, uh, even our state bird, is the mockingbird is one of the worst. They'll sit there and they'll peck one fruit, and rather than eat it all, then they'll go peck another fruit. And if they just eat one completely and leave the rest of it alone, I wouldn't mind it so much. But uh, if it's if it's down on the ground with no obvious damage and it could be a squirrel's knocked it off or like i say it may just be a normal thing that the tree is saying uh um i i just can't you know ripen this much fruit i had an old uh fisheries biologist named kirby golson we were talking about uh uh bass production in a lake one time and he told me you know your lake can produce x number of pounds of fish and it can be either a thousand bass that weigh a pound a piece or ten thousand bass that weigh a couple of ounces each. It's just how you want to manage it. And I think fruit trees are the same way. Your persimmon can produce X number of pounds of fruit, and if it is set a huge number of fruit, you're gonna have a lot more persimmons, but they're gonna be smaller and they're probably gonna mature prematurely. Uh, and you need going to need to watch that tree in years to come. And if it sets an abundance of fruit, you can head a lot of this out by getting out there and picking them off while they're still marble size. And the fruit that's left behind will make a much bigger, much better quality persimmon for you. So I don't think it's anything you've done or failed to do. I think it's just Mother Nature uh, doing what she thinks is best for the tree. I know, because every year I've, I've gotten a, a huge abundance of them, and they've been 
tennis ball up to softball size fruit. Right, this is right. the first year my man that threw me off. So well, it may and and a lot of times when you have a bumper crop one year, um, you'll have a little bit more sparse crop the next year because the tree simply got to stop and catch its breath. Okay, okay, and pomegranate. I've got a tree; it's about two years old, and it's put two blooms on. Do they start producing that young? Because it's about eighteen, well, maybe two foot tall, and that's it. It can. Now, are you sure you have a productive pomegranate? Because probably ninety percent of the pomegranates that are sold are ornamental varieties that don't ever produce much fruit, and a lot of people get confused and don't realize there's a difference. Is yours? Uh, uh, wonderful or one of the name varieties of productive pomegranate. Yes. Okay. It is wonderful. We got it from, uh, over there at Phoenix. Yeah. It uh, should be a good treat here. Yeah. Okay. It's, um, you know, it is probably grafted and, uh, or else it's cutting grown, which means that it was a mature plant does not have to go through the maturing process that you would if you'd grown something from a seed. And so it's mature. It can produce fruit anytime, can produce blooms anytime. And it's a vigorous grower. I'm, I'm not surprised that you mm-hmm. have a, a bloom here and there. You may actually have a fruit here or there. It's not going to be nearly as big or nearly as good quality fruit as you'll have in years to come. Yes, sir. Uh, next question, uh, we fast trees. You talked about, I know it's not organic, but diesel with molasses. Yeah, I and, use it more on mesquite, but if you're trying to kill out we satch, it's effective there as well. And my question was, instead of trying to, I've, I've tried that and, you know, trying to keep it mixed. It's, I'm on a gator with a little 35 gallon mm-hmm. sprayer. It doesn't stay mixed. What if I would spray it with, have two sprayers and spray one with diesel and then cover it with molasses afterwards? Would that, that have the same effect? That would work just fine. But I tell you, honestly, you may not be putting as much out as you need to. I tend to use uh, watering cans, but you would do the same. Uh, just be sure you're putting out enough to really coat that stump thoroughly. But, yeah, it would be just fine. And uh, uh, for that matter, if you wanted to, you could have uh, your liquid in one sprayer and then you could just sprinkle a handful of dry molasses over it afterwards, and that would be less liquid to carry around, less weight, and probably a lot faster. Okay, because I get Skyler, I got 55 gallons from him a while back. And yeah. I use it on coastal fields and everything else, so I had this on hand. I thought I'd give that a try. <laughs> Absolutely. It will do the job, but... Um, uh, again, yeah, it you just have to, <laughs> your fields are probably flatter than mine are. I get plenty of natural agitation bouncing around in my gator, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it, it sort of keeps itself mixed, and, uh, you know, it can be a little teeth jarring sometimes. But, uh, yeah, if you want to do it in separate applications, is what you have to remember is what you're doing. You're using the diesel to kill. You're using the molasses to create the microbial activity to, uh, to break down and get rid of the not so good things that are in diesel. Okay. And my last question, sorry for taking so much time, but good questions. Uh, we got a, got a pond, got two of them actually. And this year we have got so much moss growing on top of them. You can't even fish out of them no more. Right. And I've heard about taking, uh, uh, I want to Howard Garrett's thing. And it talked about taking cornmeal and putting it in toe sacks. Yeah. Throwing it out there. Yeah. Um, uh, don't do I it. Do a little area. Yeah, don't, don't do it. You're going to have to put up with the algae growth and all. See, here's the problem that uh, when you kill out um, any amount of vegetation, whether it's you know, anything from giant salvinia to the many different um, algaes that can grow there, 
when that stuff starts breaking down, starts decomposing, it steals all the oxygen out of the water. And you get out there and you kill all of that vegetation, you're going to kill all your fish too. Because when it starts decomposing, this is sort of what the red tides do that happen down at the coast periodically, but the decomposition of that algae, your your oxygen content of the water is certainly going to plump it by 90-95%, and your fish are going to die. So uh, you can do that in cool weather. Cold water holds okay. a lot more oxygen than warm water does. And um, at this point, if you want to physically, uh, how big is your how big is your lake or your pond? Uh, this one here is probably three quarters of an acre. Yeah. If you wanted to make yourself some sort of dredge or something, something you could fling out there and physically drag through there and pull a lot of this stuff out, just to make yourself a good channel that you can, that you can pull that lure through and just dump that, uh, just dump the, the vegetation up on the bank and let it rot there. But you do not want a bunch of dead vegetation in the water. That's going to be really bad and potentially deadly for your fish. Okay, and, and also you brought on one question for me. Uh, the moss I pull up, put that in a compost pile? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, it's good. it's going to reduce down by about 95% because it's about 95% water. But uh, it's not as good as uh, the seaweed and stuff that comes from the coast because you don't have as many different micronutrients and things in your pond water compared to what you have in seawater. But it is certainly a great material to have in the compost pile. Okay, I sure do appreciate it, Bob. Always good questions. I appreciate the call, Lex. Have a great weekend. You too. Love your show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, let's get right back to the phone lines. Virginia, if we get too close to the news, I'll just hold you over and we'll keep talking. But good morning. Okay. Uh, I hope these are quick questions. Uh, I have some potatoes. I know it's really late, but this is what my aunt did. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to use soft rock phosphate. Okay. Potatoes to make them grow. And I don't know to put it on top of it, some dirt in between them, or how to do it. Well, on any plant that you're using soft rock phosphate for, what you want to avoid is mixing your soft rock phosphate with the soil because when you blend it in, it loses its effectiveness. It gets tied up in an insoluble form, so you want to make a layer of it for the plant to grow its roots through. Now, it wouldn't really make any difference whether you did it under it or in between. The important thing is just that you have a layer, quarter of an inch, uh, three-eighths of an inch thick, and the plant will grow its roots directly through that, and it won't become chemically tied up. It'll remain available to your plants, uh, whether it's tomatoes or peppers or eggplant or potatoes or anything else. Now, I would tell you with potatoes, it's a good time to plant sweet potatoes, but uh, it's not the right time of year to be planting your redskin-type potatoes. Yeah, I know, but this is what my aunt did. But anyway, um, now this... This would work with okra and uh, collards. It will work with it'll all. work with everything. I don't know a single plant that it will hurt. I think it is essential with tomatoes. With okra, it's going to help, but it's not going to be the magic it is on tomatoes. So let's get to it. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Bob. Can you hear me? Okay, I hear you perfectly. Okay, I got you on the speaker. I just want to make sure it wasn't a problem. You're, you have a better uh, speaker than most people do. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Quick question. Uh, I do home repair work. 
uh, interior and exterior, and we were painting a house about 10 days ago in uh, calf-high grass, and I have got eaten up by chiggers. Yes, sir. And uh, I've probably got 30 or 40 on each leg clear up above my knee. Oh, so you're talking to me with one hand and itching with the other. Well, I'm trying not to itch because it just makes it worse, you know. But, yes, sir. Uh, mosquitoes and chiggers and everything, they just love me. I must have real sweet blood or something. My <laughs> wife wouldn't say that. But, um, <laughs> well, but, uh, uh, not so much for the yard. I mean, I'd like, to, I'd like to treat my yard, too, but we don't usually have them. But you got something that will kill chiggers in the skin? Um, you know, you can use witch hazel, you can use alcohol. I use, uh, um, comfrey to relieve the itch. I don't know if it kills little chigger mite or not, but I know my grandmother used to be a big believer in witch hazel. And, uh, I think it did help. And I think it actually did kill the chiggers. What you need to put in your truck and you can get it in a little ready to spray bottle from a company called nature's creation is this called Cedar Repel, and it will run the chiggers off. You spray it, uh, you know, the night before, and you're not going to have any chiggers out in that grass. And I would be looking, um, there's products from uh, uh, Amazon Lights. Uh, uh, the product is called Murphy's Natural, and it's a DEET-free repellent that you can uh, dab around, and uh, it will be a good repellent. My grandmother when we went down to their little piece of property outside of Dallas to go fishing on weekends and things, she made us put sulfur in our socks, and I guess we didn't smell absolutely perfect, but we never got <laughs> chigger bites, uh, and we just had a can of the old dusting sulfur. And uh, as I always say, we didn't have girlfriends, I guess, but we didn't have chiggers either. But uh, that well, is another. Yeah. <laughs> well, we won't go down that road. But <laughs> now, the first stuff you mentioned is—is is that only for the yard? You don't want to put that on your pant legs or your boots? I wouldn't hurt anything. I'm not sure how effective it would be, but uh, okay. it's it's repellent to chiggers and gnats and uh, mosquitoes and just about everything else. And like I say, if if you've got a garden hose out there, it comes in a little, they call it RTS, ready to spray. You just hook it on the hose and go for it. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much. I don't, that's the only question I had. This well, week. Run, down to the, run down to the pharmacy and get yourself some witch hazel. I think that'll help you today. But uh, keep some, I, had a, I had a caller, regular caller, a fellow who passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. But uh, Bodie managed the Little League ball fields up in the Bandera area. And, of course, uh, all those kids, you know, kids diving for that fly ball and sliding through the grass with abandon. And he sprayed his Little League fields three or four times a year with cedar oil and never had any chiggers in them. So uh, I realize you're moving from project to project. But if uh, if you can spray it and give it just a little bit of lead time, uh, you'll be doing the homeowner a favor as well as yourself. And maybe you should carry an extra bottle and sell it to the homeowner and pay for your own that way every time you every time you go out on a on a new job. But uh, uh, that that is the most effective product I've found to run the chiggers off so that you don't have to deal with them in the first place. I sure appreciate it. I've never had them this bad before. I mean, I've, you know, we've all as kids got in them and stuff, but golly, I tell you what, these are about to drive me up the wall. Well, wet spring, you know, gets hot and dry, chiggers go away. But uh, uh, the one thing about it now, if you ever have a St. Augustine lawn, maybe that's what you have at home, 
or maybe some of your clients may have a St. Augustine lawn. St. Augustine will never have chiggers in it. They're always going to be worse in a Bermuda lawn and somewhat bad in zoysia. But St. Augustine, for whatever reason, uh, you'll never have to deal with chiggers. So choose your projects carefully. Yeah, this this was a natural weed grass I think they had there at their house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Been there, done that. Happy Memorial Day, Bob. Thank to you, you as well, Ryan. Have a great day, and thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. All right. Nancy with the 210 area code is first. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you I've for calling. All week to talk. I've been waiting all week to talk to you. I have this butterfly bush in my backyard, of course, in a container. And uh, I noticed that it has uh, orange and black caterpillars, and they're eating the leaves and everything. Okay. It seems like they're eating the buds, too, because they're not blooming. Right. Uh, and I was ready to knock them down. Then I see a beautiful black and orange butterfly around uh-huh. that I think that's it. Yep. But what do I do? do how do, do I save the, butter, the, the plant or do I save the butterflies? Well, they're not going uh, to kill the plant. Um, they're going to make it look bad. Uh, the butterfly you're seeing is called a gulf fritillary, and it has certain plants where it likes to lay its eggs and passion vine is one and uh, um, anyway there are a lot of the butterfly related plants uh, they're good because uh, that's where they lay their eggs that's whether they want their larvae to grow and develop but unfortunately they do that by eating the leaves so most people at least most people that I know and like uh, they'll save a portion of the of their plant for the for the caterpillars and the butterflies and then they have another portion that they get rid of the caterpillars on and say okay this part's mine and this part's yours but uh yeah that funny looking little green black kind of spiny looking caterpillar that's the larval state of the gulf fritillary it is a beautiful butterfly and i think it's worth having in the landscape they're never going to kill your butterfly plant but uh, uh they will certainly make it look a little ratty at this time of year okay it also has a green ball what is that Probably the seed uh, pod. How big is how big is the? It uh, it looks like a small peach, but it's all green. Yeah, that's probably just the seed pod developing on it. Oh, okay. So then, so then um, I should uh, divide the plant. Not necessarily. If you want to take some cuttings later in the summer and start some new plants, but. um, I would just watch it. It's interesting, but it certainly does not mean that you need to divide or do anything else with the plant. This would really not be the time of year that you wanted to be doing a whole lot with dividing. Uh, we do that in the cooler months of the year, not in the heat. Oh, okay. Well, I was getting ready, but okay, well, I'll leave the, the caterpillars alone then. Uh, and Gardini, I have a quick question on that. The flower, it has a lot of flowers, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, but, uh, uh, they, they they turn brown really fast. Is yep. there any reason? They they that? just their flowers just last a day. They don't uh, they don't oh. last nearly as long as some others. That's fairly normal. It's kind of like a hibiscus. No matter what you do, you're not going to make those blooms last more than a day. Your flowers may last a little bit longer than that, but Mother Nature just didn't design that one to have real long lasting flowers. Oh, okay. Well, they're so beautiful when they oh, yeah. when they do bloom. Okay, well, those are my questions. Well, thank you very much. Now I know uh, what to do about my butterfly bush. Good questions, Nancy. I appreciate the call. Thank you. And I will move to my second Nancy. Good morning, Nancy number two. Hi. um, This is the Nancy with the start thistle weeds. Okay. And I'm I'm a 
I'm afraid I didn't get a chance to mow them down and and get the the seed, the natural grass seed before right. now. But when I mow these things down, isn't that just going to make them thicker and uh, spread the seed? How well it depends on how mature the flowers are. Unfortunately. The spotted thistles, the Russian thistles, a lot of these, uh, you cut them off when the flowers still have that purple color to them and they go on and make seed anyway. So uh, if it's a big area, you just don't have a lot of choice. I mean, you will reduce the number of seed, but for whatever reason, it's unusual to have thick, (laughs) this is a tongue twister, thick thistles more than one year in a row. I have a neighbor or had a neighbor who didn't take care of his land. He had a little pasture next to one of my fences that, I mean, the thistles were so thick you could not walk in there, and uh, he just totally ignored it, and that was about five years ago, and ever since then we've, you know, seen a thistle or two over there, but uh, it's just they're sort of self-limiting, and usually if you have a bad year one year, you will have fewer the next. Um, all I can really tell you is if it's, if it's a small area, I go through and just clip the, the bloom heads off and throw them on my burn pile and burn them before they can make seed. But, uh, if it's a big area, um, it's pretty much all you can do is just mow them off and figure, hope that you'll do a better job of getting them earlier next year. But uh, you're probably not going to have as many of them next year as you do this year. And mow them down pretty short. As short as you can. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You have a great holiday weekend. You do the same, Nancy. Appreciate the call. All right. Back to gardening. My great Sunday morning engineer was just telling me that uh, all of our garden shows are now available on demand. Uh, Go to KTSA.com. Go to shows. uh, Even yesterday's show that we broadcast from the Festival of Flowers. If you missed out, if you had to take off and do something else, uh, now you can go to KTSA.com and uh, find that show if you if you want to listen and see what you missed. And uh, thank you, Kareem. You guys uh, do wonderful work. And that's one of the questions I get. It seems like there have been some problems in the past getting uh, getting the shows up and everything. But they've apparently got that worked out, and uh, it's up there for you to listen and enjoy. Right now, we're going to talk to Joyce, Debbie, John, and Mike. And Joyce is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning to you. Well, this is the Memorial Day holiday, and it, it's it's one of the more somber holidays. Absolutely. Respect, since we honor the memory of those who have uh, given their lives in defense of this country. And I'm just going to say that for me, that also includes the many brave and heroic military working dogs. That have oh, given their I'm, lives. I'm with you 100%. I, I'm just amazed and fascinated when I see... These dogs that actually parachute along with the rangers and the people that are putting themselves in harm's way. I just, you know, it, it's just incredible uh, what our military is capable of. And uh, I'm glad that uh, good working dogs are part of it. Hannah said she doesn't want to jump out of an airplane, and I agree with her about that. But uh, you're exactly right. Uh, every Everything and every animal that served in the military uh, in whatever role, and I, you know, uh, support people are just as well as, as just as important as the frontline troops. You know, soldier can't do his job without eating and without having plenty of ammo to do what uh, 
what we expect them to do. So I'm glad you brought it up, and um, uh, it's it's just so important that we remember and uh, remember why we are free. Yes, sir. Agree with you 100%. On to gardening. <laughs> uh, cedar side, the oil, yes. can that be used to refresh these little blocks of cedar that we use in closets and drawers and things of that sort? It can be. Um, I don't know where you could get a stronger cedar oil. There may be there may be a stronger cedar oil. You might check the Internet. But, yes, cedar side uh, can very definitely be used. But I'll tell you what works just as well in most cases, uh, whether you've got a cedar closet, a cedar chest, or the little cedar blocks, you probably will refresh them just as much with a light sanding. Um, I, I built, in effect, a cedar closet at one point and actually got uh, cedar cedar faced plywood that is what my closet is lined with and uh, every couple of years I just go in with a very fine grit sandpaper sand lightly and that totally renews the cedar without having to add more oil so you might try that before you start trying to you know get messy with things like that okay okay well that's wonderful advice thank you very much a next question baby amaryllis they were a flower last year, and I saved the seeds, mm-hmm. and I put them in a little paper cup behind the piano and forgot about them until last <laughs> summer, and I had little dried-up nothings. <laughs> so I planted the whole cupful in a 10-inch pot, and I got about 13 little plants that Very came good. Up. And I took care of them through the winter, and they survived nicely. In the spring, they were there. And in early spring, like March, early March, something went through and chewed Every one of them down, I mean, to the ground. I thought they were totally gone except for two little nubs, but they came back. I left them alone, fed them, and they all come back, and they're now about three inches tall. But the thing is, in this pot, they came up randomly in about a a two-inch wide by (laughs) four-inch wide kind of strip. They're not piled on top of each other, but they're close. What would be your advice for how to take care of them going forward? Leave them alone till fall, till spring? What is your advice? I would leave them alone until fall. Um, I probably, in nature, they would go through the same dormancy, whether they were flowering sites or whether they were little plants. So come, let's say, the 1st of October... I'm going to withhold the water. I'm going to let the foliage start dying back. I'm going to just take that whole big mass of them out of the pot. I'm going to wash away what soil I can, and I'm very going to very carefully separate all the little developing bulbs and put them in their own pots. But between now and them, I'm going to fertilize them. I'm going to water them. I'm going to give them good, bright light and encourage them to grow as much as possible. Your chewing culprit could have been a mouse or it could have been a caterpillar. And, um, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, you can always mix up some BT with little molasses in it, which will take care of caterpillars. Uh, I, it's back on the market now. Um, the, uh, the product, and gosh, the name just left my mind, but uh, uh, there is a product that is like a dry material that is highly repellent. It has a lot of uh, balsam. Uh, balsam in it the um, um, oh gosh I don't know why I can't say the name of it but anyway it's uh, comes in little packets uh, it's pretty strongly scented but I put it in my storerooms I put it uh, fresh cab is the name fresh cab c-a-b oh uh, I thought that was the mouse stuff uh, well that is the mouse stuff 
But if there's any chance, then, and, you know, mice will come through and chew the top off amaryllis. So I am <laughs> hate to suggest that you, might have, that you might have a mouse around that you're not aware of. But uh, uh, I, just to be on the safe side, I probably would little put a little packet of fresh cab around where the pots are, and I'd hit them with the BT with molasses. And that way, nobody's going to be chewing the top out of them. And you suggest that after I let them go dormant, then do the separation, which will be easy to do because the sure. soil is very friable. And if they're halfway dormant, that's fine. Just withhold the water because this causes them to sort of toughen up roots and bulbs, and it's much easier to separate them without damaging them. Okay, if they're soft and succulent and active growth, you have to be much more careful handling them. If you kind of start that forced dormancy process off a couple of weeks into it, they've toughened up, and they'll, they'll put up with... Uh, Joyce and her four-legged helpers taking them out and, and, and moving them on to their individual homes. Okay, that's fine. One last quickie. On a desert rose and, um, oh, heck, um, a crown of thorns, uh-huh. I want to cut back one or two stems that they're getting very, very tall, and I'd like to try to root them at that time. What would be the best time to make that attempt? You can do it almost any time now. Um you, what you will want to do is allow the cuttings to callus. Uh, Crown of Thorns probably overnight, Desert Rose probably two or three days for that cut in to seal up. And then in both cases, I'd be rooting them in perlite. And um, I think it'd be fairly, um, fairly successful with it. On the Crown of Thorns, do you need to cut it all the way back to the ground? I've cut them in the past, left about a four-inch stalk or whatever you call it, and they never seem to sprout out from that. They may come from the base, but uh, is it better to cut them all the way back or just to cut them in half? I think cut them three, four inches tall is about the ideal thing to do. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for your time, Bob. I appreciate everything you tell us, and um, I'm sure Hannah and Maya are going to celebrate uh, Memorial Day also. Uh, along with Maxwell and the kitties at the nursery, for sure. Um, one thing, um, at the Festival of Flowers yesterday, they had a new vendor from the Brownsville area with colors and double-flowered desert rose like I have never seen before. Keep your eyes open. There are some really new, wonderful things available out there in Desert Rose. And uh, uh, they're just so colorful and showy. But, boy, there's some pretty new varieties out there I'd never seen before. So it's going to be something to watch for. Do you know if it was a local vendor? No, it was somebody out of Brownsville. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, Bob. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Joyce. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Um, we are going to be doing some business with them. I think Fanix is doing some business with them. And so uh, when you visit your favorite nurseries, you, you may just see some uh, some new, a little bit more expensive, but golly, there's some doubles and some incredibly dark colors out there. Uh, let's keep going here. Debbie is up next. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, before I get to my question, I hope the man that has the chigger problem is still listening. Okay. Um, what, when I moved to my place, it was just bare land. Uh-huh. And the first time I mowed, oh, my God, I had every inch of my body was, <laughs> was bitten. And uh, you scratch until you're bruised. Oh, I know. Um, I've a, been there, done that. Mine, <laughs> a friend of mine uh, shared a natural recipe for a repellent. Okay. And the next time I mowed, I sprayed my body down and then put my clothes on and then sprayed my clothes. I did not have one bite, not one. Tell us about um, it. Um, it's uh, lavender essential oil, uh, lemon juice, um, 
and um, uh, I put a little bit of vitamin E in there, and I also use Mexican vanilla. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's a wonderful smelling uh, product. It's totally natural. Um, and uh, I wish I could get the recipe uh, to him somehow. Um, I don't know if I could email you or something. But um, anyway, um, I was venturing out a little farther perimeter uh-huh. um, because with all the rain, the grass had grown up this past weekend. And so I, I got maybe two or three bites. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I got to thinking, you know, since the major uh, ingredient in that spray is lavender, mm-hmm. um, I got a cotton ball, put a little lavender essential oil, and dabbed it on those spots and immediately stopped itching, didn't itch for, you know, a, the next day. Um, so he might try the lavender essential oil That's, on those spots. Sounds like a great suggestion. And it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it it sounds like a great suggestion. Uh, I One of the ladies that works for us uses uh, essential oil of lavender as a mosquito repellent. A different yes. person who works for us tries it and gets no results whatsoever from it. So apparently your own body reacts with the uh, oil of lavender and things like that. And for some people, it's the greatest thing in the world. And for some people, it's just uh, not real effective. So that's why I always tell people, right. you know, experiment, find out what works for you and stick with it. That's but right. uh I see nothing wrong with that, uh, you know. That's right. Essential oil, lavender, lemon juice, vitamin E, vanilla, all those things are good for the skin. And uh, uh, I know Howard Garrett has had a mosquito repellent that he uh, recommends, has on DirtDoctor.com, and vanilla is one of the ingredients there. So mm-hmm. uh, it makes it it's your perfume and your repellent all at the same time. So I really That's appreciate right. you sharing with us, Debbie. Thank you so much. Okay. My question um, I called about, though, was um, I have a bunch of potted plants on my back porch. Some of them are the uh, miniature roses, uh-huh. and uh, they got what I think is probably the spider mites because they, they get a web all over right, them. Right, right. Um, and now, um, I, well, I try to spray them with Dawn dishwashing liquid and, and water in a spray bottle, and I'm not getting a lot of luck. Um, I tried diamantaceous oil or, or earth no or that's that's not going to do it. what you need to use is liquid seaweed liquid seaweed liquid. will toughen the plants to where spider mites uh, rarely ever show up and i make it just a part of my gardening routine on beans on things that are susceptible on uh, roses on copper plants on impatiens all of these things that have a tendency to get spider mites, if you'll get in the habit of spraying every couple of weeks with liquid seaweed, rate of about two okay. tablespoons per gallon, you won't ever see the spider mites in the first place. It doesn't kill uh, them. Malcolm Beck did some uh, experiments years ago, and what we found was that the liquid seaweed actually toughens the leaf to where the spider mites just can't get anything out of it and so consequently you never get the uh-huh. colonies developed on your plants. So I would give your I would give your rose bush a good bath. I'd tip it over on the side, put your thumb over the end of the hose and just wash as much of that as you can off. Um, you're going to lose a lot of leaves, but if you start spraying uh, with your liquid seaweed mix, the new growth that comes out will be absolutely beautiful and perfect and will be much much more resistant to spider mite problems. 
Well, I noticed that they'd even gotten, I've got a bunch of succulents, and they're they're trying to cover those up, too. Well, um, get out there with your with your seaweed. Your seaweed's going to okay. toughen them up. And, of course, succulents okay. have to be very careful what you spray. But seaweed, liquid seaweed, is one thing that you can use very, very safely on them. And it will Perfect. it will help your, your plants to repel the mites. doesn't kill them. It simply means the mites go elsewhere yes. because they can't they can't get anything out of your plants. Perfect. One other question. Um, is there something else that will kill grass like that's growing on my uh, drive, driveway? I've got a, uh, you know, the basic uh, pad thing that mm-hmm. they uh, do these days, and, it, and it, the, the grass grows up on it. I don't want to use Roundup. I've been, I've been hearing so many bad things about cancer with that. Sure. Um, is, is there anything else that I can use that will kill grass where I need to? Well, we've uh, found years ago we discovered an our grass killer that works as well as Roundup without any negatives is uh, strong vinegar and orange oil. You put two ounces of orange oil in your vinegar, um, add just a few drops of dish soap to it, the stronger the vinegar, the quicker and faster it kills. Just ordinary grocery store vinegar is okay. Grocery store pickling vinegar, which goes from 5% to 9%, is even better. Most of your nurseries and uh, feed stores and things will have 20% vinegar, and that's what I use. And you don't dilute it. Uh, you're not soaking the soil. You're only spraying it on the foliage, and you'll, receive, you'll see results in about 15 minutes. It works just as well as Roundup with no toxic side effects. Okay, and you you said that was um, two ounces or 20%? Yeah, the stronger the vinegar, the better. But uh, orange oil, also known as delimonene, um, I like Medina's brand. I think it's the strongest and best, and it has many, many other uses. In fact, we usually give customers buying it, we give them a long list of other things you can use the orange oil for. But uh, the mix for weed killer is two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar with just a small amount of dish soap added. Dish soap. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Have a great weekend. Well, and thank you for your suggestions, Debbie. We really appreciate it. You have a wonderful weekend as well. All right, let's get back to the phone line. It's going to be John and Mike and Lydia, and we'll see if we have time for more than that. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? Uh, It's just a great, great Sunday morning here, and uh, actually get a day off tomorrow to remember and uh, be thankful for all those who have served and given the ultimate sacrifice. So it's it's just a good weekend. It is indeed. And the best thing is, Every time I've talked to you in the past, I've had to be inside the house on the landline. Now we finally have cell service out here. I'm out <laughs> in the garden talking to you. Outstanding. <laughs> it's great. And I feel kind of silly because of the last call you had. But last year, we were talking about something that you used at the nursery for an insect repellent. Right. That you were getting off the Internet. And I wrote the name down and said, got to have that next year i was already stocked up with deep for the year oh wow i don't want to use deep again yeah no you don't but i can't find where i wrote it down well the the product that we really like if you're going to be out in the sun we keep it on our shelves i guess you could probably get it on the internet too but it is called cactus juice it is actually produced i believe up in seymour texas i like it because it's natural deep free and it has a sunscreen in it 
Now, if I'm not going to be out in the sun, I sometimes use this Murphy's Naturals that we talk about. But uh, mm-hmm. the one, and I love a story that goes with the cactus juice. Um, we ask them, and some years they're able to do it and some years not, we ask them to send us a gallon container of it with a little uh, plunger pump on top of it. And that's what all of us around the nursery to use. And the folks that make it say, you know, there are only two people out there that buy this by the gallon. You are one of them, and the other is the Survivor TV series. And if you can, if this stuff works in the jungles and the god awful places that those folks go sometimes, uh, it's got to be pretty good. But uh, it's all natural. It's actually derived from prickly pear cactus, opuntia, the add sunscreen, and. Uh, you know, a couple of other, I think, vitamin E or something like that. Uh, it doesn't say mosquito repellent. They call it uh, uh, sun and skin or something like that. But uh, but but cactus juice is still my favorite if you're going to be working out in the sun. If I'm in the greenhouse or a place that I'm not as concerned about the sun, uh, I also love this uh, um, one that the Murphy's Naturals folks make. Very good. I thank you. And write it down in a uh, in a place you can remember. But I sincerely hope I'll always be here to answer that question when you lose it. And I appreciate the call, John. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Mike is up next. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Are we ever going to see blue sky again? I'm sure that a month from now you're going to be saying, are we ever going to see clouds again? Is it ever going <laughs> to rain again? And uh yeah, this has been a most unusual year, and I tell you, when the sun comes out, the way the plants respond, my tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, beans, they've done more growing in the past two weeks than they've done in the past two months, but uh, um, as long as we stay in this weak El Nino pattern, we're going to see a bunch of clouds, but we're going to have some sun mixed in. <laughs> I've lived in Texas enough years to know that pretty soon we'll be complaining about too much of it. Well, I've been sitting out here on the patio, and I've been watching the smallest deer I've ever seen in my life. They look like two little bitty ice cream cones turned upside down yep. with the ears. And this poor little old thing must not be bigger than my two fists put together. You know, this is one of those years when a lot of the does have had twins, and um, sometimes both survive, sometimes one survive. I'm seeing a lot of ten, of uh, twin fawns, and part of me hates the fact that we've already got way too many deer to begin with, but they are so cute, and uh, it's just, it's they've got a lot of vegetation, they've got a lot to eat out there, so uh, just get ready for one more Bambi chewing on everything in your yard. Well, there's an old uh, mama deer, or great-great-grandma, uh, call her Crip because her left rear leg is crippled up, and I've been watching her for over 20 years. Yeah. And last year she had twins, a little buck and a little doe. Yeah. And the, uh, the buck has gone off on his own, but the doe still hangs around with her. That's fine. And I suspect this is old Grandma Crip's uh, fawn. Well, it would be very unusual for one deer to live that long, but uh, it's I certainly understand. possible. I, I guess one thing that I should mention, since you have brought up deer, is uh, all of these city folks that are moving to the country and don't really know deer, they can be very dangerous at the time that they have fawns, just as they can in the rut in the fall. And uh, one of our employees lives in a little community out near Leon Springs, and they've had a number of dogs in the neighborhood killed by deer. 
and they've had a couple of uh, walkers and joggers that have been accosted by deer. So um, they may look cute, but they are wild animals, and please keep your family pets away from them, and don't be tempted to go uh, go getting too close to the little ones because uh, they can severely injure a person uh, and like to say injure or kill uh, your pets. So uh, give them a little room. They may be cute, but they're not pets. Yeah, I uh, I keep my distance. I do feed them sometime, uh, the bigger ones, and uh, become used to them. Yeah. But I had the gardening question I had for you is uh, uh, Nancy had called in earlier about her gardenias. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, I have several gardenias out here, and uh, about six of them all have lots of uh, beautiful white flowers and mm-hmm. fragrance. And uh, after a while, they do turn yellow and then brown. And should I pull the old uh, the old ones off? It looks nicer, but it makes absolutely no difference to the plant. They're not going to make seeds, so you're not encouraging more blooms by taking the old ones off. But uh, it certainly does make the plant look nicer. The one problem that we see with gardenia flowers, now gardenias, of course, Uh, they're a little picky. They want rich soil. They want a shady spot. They don't want any hot afternoon sun, but they are very susceptible to a tiny little creature called a thrips that gets inside of the buds that will cause the, sometimes the flowers open and they already have brown edges on the petals. Many times the flowers just don't last nearly as long, but the thrips insect is, uh, is a real menace to gardenias. If you have any problem with that, Start spraying early in the mornings with a liquid garlic spray. You spray early because it's taken up better through the plant that way, and the garlic will pretty much totally get rid of the thrips insects and also aphids as well. But gardenias have been beautiful this year. I think maybe all the moisture and a little bit cooler temperatures. Uh, I'm seeing more beautiful gardenias in bloom than I've seen in the past 15 or 20 years. So enjoy them. Expect those flowers. Expect the flowers to last several days. If they're if they're not lasting, you may have thrips. Uh, and if the buds are not opening well, you may have thrips, and, but you can take care of that with the garlic. But whether or not you pick the old buds and flowers off doesn't make any difference at all, Mike. Okay. <clears throat> well, they've been staying around quite a bit. Yeah. Some of them look like yellow flowers. Yep. Yeah, that's that's what they do. I we've got a bunch of them sitting on the deck, and I mean, you can close your eyes and walk by, and you know when you're next to them, they are so fragrant. But yep. uh, the blooms, for I guess maybe because it's been a little bit cooler, but the blooms, even as they fade, they they stay on there in that yellow form for some time. Well, I know you had told uh, Nancy earlier that they're just a one day bloomer, but. Uh, that was, I think, was a different flower. She was talking about a, a butterfly uh, weed or a butterfly plant. Oh, I suspect okay. it was actually a vine she was looking at, perhaps one of the passion vines, uh, if I understood her correctly. But no, gardenias usually last uh, substantially longer than that. Well, I have two in pots uh, around uh, the others that are in the ground, mm-hmm. and they they have buds but no flowers yet. Well, watch them carefully, and if the buds seem to, you know, deteriorate without opening, take your thumbs and actually break it open, look very carefully, put on your glasses if you need to. The thrips insect is so tiny, you could probably put 20 of them on the head of a pen, but it is the primary 
pests that we get on gardenias, and it can certainly do damage to the buds before they open. So just keep your eyes open for that. If you see them, garlic will take care of the problem. And what kind of uh, liquid garlic uh, is there a product that's already mixed up? Or oh, what? yeah, there are plenty of them. There's one they call mosquito barrier, another one called garlic barrier. Uh, there, there are two or three different ones. The garlic sprays are being used more and more widely for as mosquito repellents uh, where you can spray the whole yard with them. But uh, look and see. Mosquito barrier and garlic are by the same company. One of them is a little bit more concentrated than the other, and I'd have to look at the language. But either one of those are going to work very well for you. Well, I'll try that. I have not had any trouble with them yet with uh, trips, but uh, I'll take a look at some of the buds. You take a look at them carefully, and you have a good weekend. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you, Mike. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, back to gardening. In just a moment, we're going to finish up the the calls with Lydia, but I do want to take just a second right now to remind you that uh, a lot of people don't know about this. This is sales tax-free weekend. They call it Water Saver uh, Landscape Weekend or something like that. All plants, and it even includes house plants, but all plants, all items like mulch, like compost, like soils of any kind, including potting soils, all of those things are sales tax free. Uh, things that are water saving, like uh, drip irrigation equipment, sales tax free. Goes on today and tomorrow. Now, a lot of nurseries are not open tomorrow. We're not open tomorrow. But uh, um, if you're buying, you know, your less expensive mulches and things from box stores or something like that, remind them there's no sales tax on any of those items today or tomorrow. Uh, let's go ahead and finish calls, and maybe we'll talk about a couple of other things. Good morning, Lydia. Well, hi there, sir. How are you today? It's funny every, I'm all right. It's funny how every time I call you, when it's my turn, you go through commercial, and I said, what a coincidence. That always happens. <laughs> well, I'm just glad you got through. I, I have a lot of people call me and say, you know, I never could get through, and the plant's dead now, but what would you have told me? So at least you got through, and here I am I to help you. you. And I appreciate it. Yes, I have several questions. Okay. Um, I have a mountain laurel. I, I think my neighbors in the back have a pecan tree or something because every year I get the webworms. But this year they're eating up all my mountain laurels. And I'm wanting to know what can I – I hate to be cutting all these branches no. off. No, don't cut uh, the branches. Limbs. Yeah, you can want, You can kill the uh, – uh, and the worms, it's a its a moth that flies in and lays the eggs. They're not coming directly from the mountain laurel. Two things. I think your mountain laurel is staying a little too wet with all the rain, and that makes your mountain laurels more susceptible to the caterpillars. Oh, but uh-huh. you, you don't water that mountain laurel at all. And if you want to kill those worms, you can use a product called BT, which is totally safe for people, or you can use a product called Spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D. It kills caterpillars almost instantly, and it's also safe for people and pets. But but watch your so watering. The BT, the, P, the BT um, I, I have to mix it with water in that little spray can, right? It works better. There is a dry form of BT called Dipel, D-I-P-E-L, and it will work. But I think the liquid works better. But if, if you're not able to mix it up, look for the powdered form. comes in a shaker can. Just shake it over those webworms, and they will die. Oh, the powder. Oh, that's good to know. Another thing, um, I have one that's going over my to my neighbor's yard. Uh, 
is can I top it off? You want to die on me? No, you don't ever want to take off more than, say, a third of the foliage at any one time. But you can certainly trim your mountain laurels. And if you're going to trim, this is the best time of year to do it because you won't be affecting next year's blooming. Okay. And now uh, on the orange oil, um, I find it to be rather expensive, and it's only for me. And I, I don't know. Do you know where they sell it in smaller containers? The smallest size we have found for good quality is a pint container. Uh, because we've been asking them that same question, Medina used to put it up only in a quart. Now they put it up in a pint. But the nice thing about orange oil is it has so many other uses. It'll be the best cleaner you've ever used around your home. Uh, you can use it to kill fire ants. You can use it to kill those fung- those uh, sewer gnats that sometimes get in your drains. Um, if you're ever oh, near, yes. if you're ever near our Shades of Green Nursery, we actually have a little list made up of all the different uses for orange oil and all the things you can do with it, other than for the vinegar and orange oil and things.